millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Rory Stewart, a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute and former UK development minister, and also the author of a recent report from the Atlantic Council, on the Afghan refugee crisis, how to resurrect the Global Refugee Resettlement Coalition. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. I do want to get to Afghan refugee resettlement, but before we do, you know, it it feels like the end of last year was the global crisis was the still ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. Added to that now, we have this Russian war in Ukraine. Do you think... Uh, you were, I think many people would say rightly, critical of the world's response to the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan or how the withdrawal went, how the world responded or didn't. Do you think that the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, did they learn lessons from Afghanistan and were they able to apply them to, to Ukraine? Well, I certainly think the response on Ukraine has been stronger uh, than in Afghanistan, stronger than Putin expected. And it's impressive to see the way that the United States, United Kingdom, Europe have come together and the speed with which they've been willing to speak up for Ukraine, supply armaments, impose sanctions. There is, however, a long way to go. And in the end, this whole thing rests on whether or not people are prepared to impose sanctions on oil and gas. And that's a big ask, big ask for Germany and Italy that get about half of their gas from from Russia. So... It will have huge economic consequences for the European economies and through the European economies for the global economy, but it must be done. Because unless we do that, Vladimir Putin is not actually going to feel much pain from this. He spent the period since 2014 in Crimea essentially creating an economy that is protected against sanctions, with the exception really of oil and gas. So you think that there should be um, sanctions on the energy sector, and I don't want to Put words in your mouth, but that those should be imposed sooner rather than later. Immediately. And swift payments should be frozen for oil and gas imports as well. Because that's the only thing that will really make a difference to the Russian economy and make a difference to Putin's calculus. I think the second thing is that you, you drew the link between Afghanistan and 
what's happened. There is a very clear link. Essentially, since probably 20, I'd say 14, mm -hmm. there has been a very strong sense of the Old West and retreat. And it's remarkable to remember that really it's only since 2014 that we've seen phenomena like Bolsonaro, Modi, the Russian invasion of Crimea, ISIS taking Mosul. These are relatively recent phenomena. And our failure to respond properly to Putin's invasion of Crimea, our failure to deal adequately with Syria, giving Putin the ability to pose as the great savior of Syria through a violent intervention, and most importantly of all, the incredible betrayal of the Afghan people, which showed an extraordinary lack of care, lack of responsibility, lack of patience on the part of the United States and its allies, certainly contributed to Putin's sense that he could get away with this. You see some in the media saying, you know, this is, this is happening in Europe. There was one commentator who said this is happening to civilized people. Do you think that there's an element, and I'm, I'm, I want to be very clear to listeners, that I'm not at all saying that the world should not respond with solidarity and support to Ukraine, but do you think that there is a sense in which the strength of the response is because this is happening to Ukrainians and not Afghanistan's, right? To Is there an element of whatever you want to call it, racism or colonialism or outdated thinking about parts of the world that, 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 that contributes to why the response has been so strong on Ukraine in a way that it just wasn't on Afghanistan? Possibly, and we often worry about this, often worried, for example, whether our reaction to what was happening in Bosnia and Kosovo was stronger than our reaction to what happened in Rwanda, for example, going back mm -hmm. to the 90s. But it is important to remember that the reaction to the horror in Afghanistan in August was very intense. The risk in all of these situations is that in our democratic states, it's very easy to provoke an outburst of empathy. The problem is sustaining it. I, I remember putting out uh, brief videos that I was filming on the street side on Afghanistan in August, and I would get 2 million views asking for people to show sympathy and solidarity for Afghans within about three weeks you'd get about 40,000 people watching an almost identical message. Right. And the risk with Ukraine is exactly the same. Particularly that there's there's attention paid on the war itself, but there's also this broader humanitarian, there's a broader humanitarian issue and a broader humanitarian response that will be needed. I, th I think so far you've seen, well, actually, let me ask you, what have you made of the response toward Ukrainian refugees so far? At the moment, we're still lacking real leadership and a real international refugee coalition. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Afghanistan or Ukraine. Fundamentally, what we need to do is to take this opportunity, and it's a good opportunity. It's an opportunity for democracies to demonstrate their values. And actually, a great opportunity. And Putin has given an extraordinary opportunity to democracies to show why democracy matters, why our value matters. This invasion of Ukraine could be an opportunity really after nearly 20 years of decline in the confidence and legitimacy of democratic states to rebuild it. But one way to rebuild it is to be generous towards refugees. And by that, I mean building a proper coalition led by the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, European Union, which will really commit to take a predictable, sustainable number of refugees every year. And I would suggest that number should be 0.05% of our population. So that's slightly above what President Biden has committed to take. It's below what the Canadians are already taking, but significantly above what the British, for example, are taking. 
nearly double the kind of numbers they're offering to take. Now, if we could put this in place, this could be a real example of the sort of idealism that's really been lacking in international refugee policy since the late 1970s, early 1980s. I want to ask you about what it would take to put this in place. But first, this was this report was presented to me as your first reinvolvement with with British politics. Why it's why this subject, right? Why a refugee resettlement? I, I have spent a lot of my life in Afghanistan. I've got very strong, direct connections with Afghanistan. I ran a nonprofit in Afghanistan. I walked across Afghanistan in the winter of 2001, 2002. And for me, this crisis in Afghanistan was the most horrifying revelation. I mean, essentially 20 years of my life have been spent involved in Afghanistan and to see President Biden and his allies totally needlessly hand the country over to the Taliban. When actually, I believe for the sake of keeping a few thousand American troops, it would have been extremely practical to prevent the Taliban from even holding a major city instead of which we handed the entire country unnecessarily back to the Taliban. So I I think it it relates deeply to my own personal life, to the fact that I have obviously hundreds of friends in Afghanistan. I'm connected with a charity which has 250 employees on the ground that we were struggling to work out who should be evacuated, who needed to remain to provide services on the ground. And it really brought to light for me how sad it is that the international community can't even consider taking let's say, five Afghans or five Ukrainians into a town of 10,000 people. You mentioned that this has been, uh, basically our global system of refugee resettlement is it's outdated by not years, decades. Why do you think that is? Why is it? Is it bureaucracy? Is it xenophobia? Is it why? Uh, the world has changed so much in the past several decades. It's, it's um, isolationism. It's extraordinary isolationism. It took enormous courage, really, in the 1970s for people to make the gestures. So in in the case of the United Kingdom, it was Asian communities from Uganda who were threatened by Idi Amin. And Ted Heath, who was then the Prime Minister, Conservative Prime Minister, very boldly announced that he would be prepared to take very large numbers of Asian families from Uganda back to the United Kingdom because they were persecuted. Again, partly under the leadership of Richard Holbrook, the United States in the late 1970s made a big offer for Vietnamese boat people and ultimately resettled nearly one and a half million people, an extraordinary number of people over the 1980s. But since then, the only countries that have really kept up and have really demonstrated these values have been Canada and Sweden. Under President Obama, the numbers dropped very steeply. And of course, under President Trump, dropped more steeply still. And it's still very difficult to engage any senior member of the US administration on this. So launching the report, easy to get uh, leading Canadian politicians, leading British politicians, but uh, even the most progressive Democrat congressmen and senators are not prepared to sign up to a target on accepting refugees. And that tells you a great deal about what's happened to American domestic political culture. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. What are sort of the steps that you think would need to be that we would need to go through to get a refugee resettlement plan? like the one that you're proposing? Essentially, I'm envisaging a global refugee coalition. And the core of it will be those countries that have a historic relationship to taking refugees. Unfortunately, many countries don't. China is a very large economy, obviously, second largest economy in the world, but it does not take refugees. Japan, which is an enormous economy and a highly developed state, takes only a few hundred a year. In fact, small places, like Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, these small European states, take more than the whole of Latin America combined in terms of formal refugee resettlement. So it is a opportunity for what was called the Old West, for North America, for Europe, Australia, to come together and demonstrate that they can still provide global leadership and do it in a way that I think is eminently manageable. So the idea would be that somebody volunteers to lead it. Could be Germany, which is currently chairing G7, has a new chancellor. Could be an opportunity for President Biden. And a good opportunity for President Biden because it would be an opportunity to say, yes, America's stepping up, but what I'm showing is that through American leadership, we're sharing the burden. We're getting other countries to step up too. This isn't all coming to the United States. These other countries are also committing to take 0.05% of that population. And I think 
connecting it to issues like Afghanistan and Ukraine will be the right way to do it politically. I'm speaking now as a politician because if you think about Afghanistan, it's not just people from the progressive left who care about Afghans. There are two million American servicemen who pass through Afghanistan who care deeply about Afghans and feel deep connections. So it's right across the political spectrum because there has been a very unusual, intimate 20-year relationship between Afghanistan and NATO, the United States and its allies. And you can feel the same with Ukraine. Again, you feel a real outpouring of sentiment. So this is the moment to strike. This is the moment for somebody like President Biden, or it could be Prime Minister Johnson, to step up and say, okay, I'm going to form a global refugee coalition and we'll set it up with a target, let's say 0.05% of your population, which, as I say, would equate to about taking an Afghan family of five into a town of 10,000 people. And we will do that year in, year out. And we will work out how to take people from conflict zones, not require them to go into a neighboring country in a refugee camp. There is, since, I mean, for many years, but especially since 2015, there have been so many conspiracy theories here in the United States, in the UK, certainly throughout Europe, about the globalists and trying to the supposed or the alleged erosion of borders and this idea that we're the cosmopolitans are flooding countries with immigrants and refugees, leaving aside the anti-Semitic and xenophobic undertones of that, how do you, again, speaking as a politician, how do you come up with a narrative that is that, that overrides that? Because there, we've seen that they're quite, it's, it's, it's quite powerful so, messaging. So I think the answer is that you have to explain that you are going for a sensible, pragmatic, middle ground solution. You're absolutely not endorsing open borders. Right. Those sorts of demands, from which come from a loss of refugee campaigners who basically don't believe in borders at all and believe that everybody should be allowed to cross borders whenever they feel like it, is simply impractical, inconceivable, and I think politically totally untenable. What we're talking about, but equally, the idea that you take nobody, that you accept that people are at risk of extreme persecution, that female judges in Afghanistan could be killed, and you're not prepared to take them out, is also unacceptable. So what you're saying to the population is, no, we're coming up with a number here, 0.05% of our population annually, which represents a very, very manageable number of people. It represents the number of people that we can absorb, and it's something that we can plan around. And we're going to do it by targeting the people who are most vulnerable. So in a European context, that's about saying, we're moving from a world in which we're saying that, and this is a lot of the politics around this, is people saying these are just young Afghan men who paid traffickers to take them to Greece. Instead, this resettlement plan would work with human rights NGOs on the ground to identify people who were at extreme risk, female judges, human rights defenders, LGBTQ campaigners, journalists, and select those people and move them directly from Afghanistan to refuge in Western countries. It, it often seems to me, I mean, you're seeing it now with this, with the Russian war in Ukraine. So many have come out and said, yes, we will take, we'll take refugees. Like here in the United States, yes, they, they can come here. But the logistics are not in place, right? So there's no, how do you actually get people? It's fine for the governor of New York to say, we'll take Ukrainian refugees, but how are you actually getting them to New York State? Do you, I mean, in your experience, how does one match the, the rhetoric with the practical 
plan in an unfolding crisis? So the, the answer is that people know how to do this. We did it with Vietnam, Vietnamese boat people in the late 1970s. Actually, it's been done in Central America by the United States. It's been done historically with Cuba. Essentially, what you need to do is process on the borders or in country using third parties such as NGOs. You need to have a clear sense of how many people you're prepared to take and a clear sense of criteria which need to be applied. And then you get on with it. It's remarkable how much you can do. Germany absorbed nearly a million people in a year. The United States moved well over 100,000 Afghans, improvising as they went on parole visas into the United States in the, in the matter of a few weeks. So these governments can absolutely do it if the political will is there. Generally, when you hear that there are logistical challenges or bureaucratic challenges, it's because the political will's not there. Right. It's not very difficult to design a system because ultimately all you need to do, particularly with Ukraine at the moment, people can get on trains to Berlin, get off the train in Berlin, they can be processed in Germany and they can move to the United States. If New York is serious about taking people, that can be done tomorrow. What will you be watching as the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine unfolds? What specifically will you be looking at to see how the world adapts and secondly, you said that, th that this, that Afghanistan, Ukraine, that perhaps this presented an opportunity. Do you think the world will take the opportunity? So looking very carefully at Ukraine to work out whether the world is prepared to be serious. This is, in the most optimistic scenario, what has happened is that the democratic West has been revealed as the sleeping giant, not Russia. That we can potentially now see what it means to have economies which are cumulatively 25 times the size of the Russian economy and what we can do with that in terms of exercising influence in favor of values. But I am still very, very anxious. There is a generation of politicians that have emerged and I'm afraid in the United States, I feel this sadly, even with some of the most talented people in the National Security Council and the State Department and USAID, who continue to pursue a very isolationist policy. And they claim that they're doing it because they no longer want to be a global policeman, but really they're doing it because they're worried they're being outflanked by Donald Trump and they don't want to seem to be paying too much attention to people outside the United States, to be blunt. I think that this could be the most extraordinary opportunity. And I think it is an opportunity for the United States in particular to show moral leadership to take this moment when everybody is focused on Ukraine and say, okay, we're gonna do this properly and we're gonna make President Biden's legacy, the creation of a global refugee coalition. Rory Stewart, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. If you've enjoyed this interview, you can read all of our international coverage on newstatesman.com. And please do tell a friend, even an enemy, rate us, leave a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Our team will be back later this week. I'm Emily Tampkin. Thanks for listening and until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.